because even the terms we use, right? Heaven, hell, God, Christian, like all of so much of these terms that we use are actually European kind of pre-Christian pagan terms that we've now kind of, you know, uh, put in there. And so, you know, I, as, as just another way of kind of decolonizing and owning the, the faith of Yeshua uh, as, a, as a person of African descent, uh, I'd like to do that. But, um, but yeah, but missionally as a Nasrawi or Christian, myself, who has a deep, still has a deep passion for people to know Yeshua as Lord and Savior, that, that I, I really do think, as you said, that, that this, this, this idea of Christianity being this Western right religion, that's the biggest obstacle to the gospel, because when Christianity is associated with one particular culture, uh, with Western white culture, then the, the logical kind of consequence of that is that anybody who doesn't fit that cultural identity, that geocultural uh, community of Western or white, will feel like, well, that's not an option for me. So it's, it's a non-starter at the gate. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the middle of February. Uh, I am Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm very happy that you're here, and um, I'm really excited for this episode. I say this every week, and I still mean it. Uh, so there are now 51, as of recording this, on the middle of February, uh, patron supporters of the show. My goal would be to end the year at 100. And so if you were getting anything at all from this free podcast, consider hitting the button over at the website or at patreon.com uh, slash can I say this at church. Become a contributor to the show, literally $1 a month, while for many, many people is an afterthought cumulatively for the amount of people that listen to the show is entirely changing the whole dynamic of the show. Do that for me if you would. Uh, some of the other things that I've done on Patreon. So if you don't know this, uh, every Patreon supporter of any level does get a discount off anything in the store for some of the merch from the show uh, by request of some of the supporters. So that is there. And if for some reason you did not get that email or that Patreon supporter code, shoot me a message over there on Patreon and I'll send it back to you. And um, we will make that go. Speaking of the store, uh, I recently found finally a women's shirt that matches and fits a little better than some unisex version of a shirt that doesn't really, it's not really built for a man, nor is it really built for a woman. And so those are there. I'm slowly but surely adding in more things. So keep checking back. And if you see something you like, or if there's something that you want specifically, let me know and I'll make sure that we make it. A few weeks ago, actually on um, Martin Luther King Day, I had two conversations. And so this is the first one. And then I think next week will be the next one. Uh, the first conversation was with Dr. Vince Bantu. In it, we talked a lot about the early cultural history and significance of the church and why that should matter for us today. There is so much I don't know. And we barely, very barely, like if, like if our fingernail or our arm is the history of the church, we rubbed off like a millimeter of our fingernail in today's conversation. Oh, one small aside, editor's note, I apologize, then we'll hit go. There is, it sounds like either, um, Dr. Vontu, uh, it sounds like either Vince is really excited and his sneakers keep squeaking on a basketball court, but we didn't record this in a basketball court. Or his fire alarm, smoke alarm detector, the battery's going dead. And so you'll hear that happen a few times. Funny story, I actually walked through my house as I was editing this wondering which one of my smoke detectors was going bad because I swore I just changed the batteries a few months ago. So you will hear that. Do not lose your mind. It is most likely in the show. I edited out the ones that I could, but I could not get them all. And so I wanted that to be the last thing that you heard before we start the show so that you didn't pause it and go, what is happening to my house? 
why are the smoke detectors going off? That is that. Now on with the show. Dr. Vince Bantu, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I'm excited to talk with you. And also, if you're listening, and you're probably not, Professor Ra, thank you so much for pointing me in the direction of Dr. Bantu. Um, I've enjoyed what I've learned from you so far in the last 60, 85 days or something like that. So welcome to the show, man. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I was unfamiliar with you. Matter of fact, when Professor Ra told me your name, I was like, time out, spell it for me, please. Um, it also didn't help that he didn't have the strongest connection. And so it was hard to hear him. Uh, hold on. I forgot to hit record. Let me, there we go. I promised I would try to record all these. There we go. We made it. Um, uh, yeah, it's out of, it's out of habit. You're only the third one that'll be recorded. So way out of my, way out of the habit. So yeah. So kind of who are you, what's your background, your upbringing, kind of what is the story of Vince? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of my my stomping grounds. And uh, I was uh, born to a, uh, a biracial family, black and white. My father's African-American, my mom's white. Uh, they're, everybody's from St. Louis, you know, going back generations. And um, yeah, and I, you know, grew up, uh, you know, initially actually in a single parent household. And um, my uh, mother was actually the first uh first Christian uh, in the history of our family. And uh, she shared the gospel with me and I became a follower of Jesus uh, when I was really young and had a passion for evangelism and sharing the gospel uh, at a very young age. And, you know, grew up in a very, you know, St. Louis is an extremely racially segregated uh, city and, you know, growing up in a uh, kind of a multiracial household. And at a, as a young Christian, I was always thinking about issues of faith and culture and identity and how those things go together. And, I, you know, um, it was, you know, it was interesting. I grew up in a, in a, in a black neighborhood, but I grew up in a white church hmm. and, so, uh, kind of just, you know, I associated like my own self and cultural and identity in one direction, but my faith in another. And, uh, and I, I remember trying to bring a lot of my friends in my neighborhood to church and, you know, they, they didn't want to go <laughs> and I didn't understand why at first. Um, and, and then it kind of hit me later and, uh, and so I think that really put a passion in me for, uh, yeah, for evangelism, you know, kind of continuing with evangelism, but especially uh, contextual evangelism and, uh, and, and really uh, providing a place of worship and discipleship that's, that's relevant and, and, and empowering for people uh, as God has made them. And so that kind of has taken me on a, a whole journey, um, you know, into being into going to, to, to college, to in order to study theology and kind of be prepared for ministry and, uh, and then end up going, uh, going to seminary. And that I kind of got the bug, uh, for, for academics and, and specifically, um, for, you know, kind of early Christianity in Africa. And again, just kind of with that interest of faith and culture and identity, uh, you know, really when I got, when I first became introduced to, you know, the early history of Christianity in Africa and Asia and other places, I just got smitten with it and, you know, ended up feeling led to go do my PhD in that, that area and kind of teach and write and really just kind of just, you know, kind of 
pick a spot in that area for the rest of my life and just try to really explore it more and share it more. Um, but, you know, kind of in that same passion of helping people to understand the, the wide cultural breadth of Christian life and practice and the way that the gospel is revealed, uh, especially just from the origins, like kind of from the beginning of it. Yeah. I think and that really gets me because it well, a big thing in the black community is, um, well, regardless of today, how people might try to express Christianity in different ways, a, a big, a big question or concern is the origins. Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. This idea that, you know, even if you try to take it in another direction now, it still came from this. Yeah. And that, you know, so, so for me, I like to get at, well, let's look at that. And, you know, what did, it, how, what did it come from or what was it like from the origins? They, um, I had a prior guest and we'll get there. Cause actually this is a question I wanted to ask you. And, um, I hope that you know the answer. If not, I'm going to edit it out or maybe I'll leave it. Who not? Why, why not? Um, I really like that you use the word smitten. I think that's the first time in years that I've heard that word used and I've forgotten that it was a thing and I kind of like it. So um, I, I've never thought about being smitten with, with, with academics. So I like that. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. So what what was the faith or what is the faith of your family prior to your mom? Like, what does that still look like now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, uh, you know, I'm, you know, as I mentioned, I'm from St. Louis, and and my, all my relatives are as well, and um, and and I think you know a lot of my grandparents, all of my grandparents, and uh, and you know most most of my relatives, it's kind of just a like a nominal uh, kind of Americanized, uh, I would say pseudo Christianity, or you know, like um, you know, I would say maybe kind of yeah pseudo-Christian, but essentially like kind of uh, um, Americana religious identity, uh, you know, kind of American identity that has like Christian terminology mm-hmm. to kind of put on it a little bit for dressing. Uh, so if you ask people like what, you know, what is your faith? Nobody, my family, nobody's, you know, like, I mean, Bible Belt, Missouri, uh, black and white side, nobody's going to say like, oh, I'm an atheist or I'm a you know, I'm a Buddhist or a Hindu or I'm a decided member of another faith or, or I, I renounce God. It was like, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian, you yeah. know, but you know, go to church like once every few years and, uh, kind of, you know, like just do their own thing, uh, kind of a thing. And gotcha. yeah, as I mentioned, my mom was really the first person that, uh, you know, actually when she was young, really, you know, actually had a vision of Jesus calling out to her and, and began to really walk with Jesus in a really serious way. And, and uh, and then kind of you know shared that with me as well when I was a when I was a young young boy. So when I hear you t- describe that level of Christianity, uh, I'm reminded of and I forget who said it. I think it was my prior pastor. He used to say, you know, we got to make sure we're 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 welcoming for the CEO Christians. You know, church and Easter only. You know, make sure that we're welcoming for the CEO Christians because honestly, they. They come in and and they're they're equally important this week. So, uh, which I know sounds <laughs> sounds bad, and that also makes me think of every time it ices or storms. My current pastor would be like, you know, this is always my favorite time. We get to, you know, we get to. He jokingly says, you know, we get to separate the sheep from the goats because the church almost closed and you all are still here, and so you're, <laughs> which, which which I like. Um, so, what about that? So, you talked about you would try to bring your friends to church, and they were like, nope, not having events. Don't bring me. A Again, why? Mm-hmm. Like, what? What was broken for them, or what was maybe incorrect in your church? Or incorrect's the wrong word because I'm not sure that that's mm-hmm. applicable. But you know what I mean. Kind of, why did that not mm-hmm. work? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, again, I, you know, St. Louis is a, is a weird place. I mean, it's is like I said, I I, I 
think it's the most, I mean, obviously segregation is an issue across the country, but I, I mean, now, I mean, I'm in Houston now and, and it's just such a patchwork and it's the most diversity in America. And uh, really? of course here as well. That, yeah, I know. Right. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I would have figured it, like New York or Chicago or something like that. Me too. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, Houston, apparently Houston is, is number one. I mean, it's hmm. got the industry just brings so many different people and, and, you know, and, and it's not like um, New York or LA where there's these ethnic neighborhoods, but Houston's just like, like, like just everywhere. Yeah. You know, everybody everywhere. Um, but St. Louis is like, it's not diverse. It's black, white, binary. That's it. Uh, and it's just, it's dramatically segregated. Uh, it, it just in a, in a, I think in a, in a way unprecedented, literally there's a street that cuts through the entire city, one street and everything on that side of that street is black and everything on that side of that street is white. And it's, it's so consistent. Huh. Um, I mean, and you go North of that street or you even just drive down that street and everything on the right of you is a predatory check cashing loan place or like a, you know, chop suey place with bulletproof windows and, you know, like, you know, you get your food through the sliding glass and dilapidated homes and you look on the left and it's like pet grooming places and yoga studios and coffee shops and, you know, luxury condos. And it's just, it's crazy. Um, so I, again, I grew up uh, about a mile north of that line uh, on the black side. And then I went to church about a mile south of that line. And so it wasn't that church wasn't that far away from my home. And actually the church had a, kind of an urban ministry. It was, it was, you know, it's kind of like coming into, and this is back in, you know, the eighties where it's like come into the hood and reach out to people, bring kids to church and take them out to the woods or take them on a camping trip or BBS. Or, and I was, you know, I was going, I kind of grew in that church and was discipled. And again, you great people who love the Lord and, and love me and my family and supported us in a great way. Um, and, uh, but I would just say, yeah, I think the relative kind of, um, you know, uh, not not really having thought through issues of identity and culture and how that intersects with faith. Uh, nobody ever told me, hey, uh, if you want to be a good Christian, you need to act white. Nobody ever said that. Um, but 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 yet at the same time, they did in many, many ways indirectly. Hmm. So uh, so I just kind of always grew up again, not seeing people who looked like me from like an urban, uh, you know, kind of hip hop, uh, very gritty kind of context. I didn't see people like that following Jesus. The people that I saw that looked and talked and acted like me were not following Jesus. And not to say that everyone who's white was, but the people who I knew and the people that I was seeing who followed Jesus were. So I was just kind of internalized that, that that's what I need to do if I'm going to really be a serious follower of Jesus. And especially when I felt called to ministry, I kind of went through this whole uh, cultural transformation where I felt like, okay, well, if I'm going to go into ministry and I'm going to, I always had this sense that growing up in my neighborhood and, you know, uh, wearing my FUBU and my, my, and I, my Kango hats and I'm dating myself a little bit, but. And, and, I thought you were going to say Jinkos. I thought you were going to say Jinkos. Why not? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right, and, and you know the Jabos and and you know uh, and just MFG you know, Jabo. I haven't thought about that long in a long, long time. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> man, was, oh man, I miss it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. I told my wife, I, I know I'm old now because uh, I don't even like skinny jeans. I can't. I, I, I can't do it. There's no way. Um, but but yeah, I just I was always kind of grew up thinking all of that. Everything about it was was bad. Was wrong. And so when I felt called to ministry, I was like, oh, I have to reject this. I have to totally reject it. And so 
when I would bring other friends, you know, I remember I had, you know, I remember my homie like D and uh, my, you know, my dude Durbo and um, everybody I would try to bring, you know, to church. And sometimes they would come and then they'd just be like, nah, I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, I mean, we had, you know, just the, all of the contemporary, you know, Christian music singing about, you know, hills and rivers and valleys and deers and <laughs> like, and they're just la la la, like, you know, and, and, you know, again, just the, uh, you know, just everything about it just didn't speak to the cultural context. So again, the message, the message, you know, so the message that was indirectly being communicated is that there is not only a spiritual conversion, but a cultural conversion. And unlike me, Many of my friends were saying, I don't want to give up who I am. I don't want to, I don't want to like yeah. reject. Um, and whereas I had just kind of said, well, I guess I, I, I guess I kind of have to. And so some of them had even looked at me and, uh, you know, kind of saw me as like, you know, I was a sellout or I was walking away from who I was. And I just kind of looked at, I mean, some of them even told me that, especially when I kind of went through this conversion when I was like 17, the year before I went to college and I started like, you know, again, in my, I started like dressing different and, and really trying to, I was, I was getting ready to go to this white evangelical college and I really wanted to look and dress them and act the part to fit in. And, but for me, it wasn't because I liked it or was, wasn't because I, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, it was really into it. I, and it wasn't even, even, uh, internalized as like a, I want to be white because I'm ashamed of who I am and who and how I look, but it was more like I associated with, this is what it means to be a good Christian. This is what my commitment to God is about. Yeah. And, and I would, I would look at other people and say, well, you just must not want to be like, you just must not want to follow God. Um, yeah. Yeah. You referenced culture. Uh, you referenced the church uh, and then you referenced whiteness. And so I want to quote something back that I, I heard you say in the talk. I don't know when the talk was because whatever, I was listening to it in the car. So I wasn't taking notes, but I did hit pause and memo what you'd said. And so you say in the talk that the greatest threat to the spreading of the gospel today is the church, I'm sorry, is the cultural, dang it, is is the culture association of whiteness and the church or something like that. There's something to that effect. And then you also just alluded to, you know, uh, you know you're know, you having to sell out or this type of stuff. Like, So what is, like, what do you mean when you say that the th- biggest threat to the gospel today is the, the church just saying, you know, you have like, the whiteness of the church? Like, I don't even understand what that means. And I'm aware of how ignorant that question is, but that's kind of the whole point of the show. I'm usually the most ignorant person in the room. So. Oh, no, no. Um, no, I, I think that's a great question. And well, and actually you mentioned uh, the, you know, the brother who connected us, you know, my dear, my dear friend and mentor and uh, spiritual father, uh, Dr. Sun Chan Ra. And, you know, he talked, uh, Dr. Ra talks a lot about, I mean, I, I kind of just borrow his wording. I think it's really uh, helpful when he talks about the Western white cultural captivity of the church and this idea that I, you know, again, that I kind of grew up, under this association that that Christianity uh, is in and of itself, um, you know, uh, essentially a white Western thing, you know, so like, I mean, you know, you know, anthropologists and sociologists, they, you know, they talk about things like cultural products and uh, or, you know, objectivations or, or you know, uh, yeah, like uh, ethnic boundaries or whatever, like, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, most cultures have stuff or produce things that are kind of laced with their internalized values and, and these, you know, kind of highly signified uh, rites of passage and, and, or, or, or kind of, you know, uh, yeah, like rituals or actions that are highly symbolic and, 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 and are, and are markers of a particular community. So, I mean, perfect example is like, 
you know, a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, right? That's, that's, that's a Jewish thing, right? So unless you're Jewish, you don't have a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. And if, and if you're not Jewish, and if I were to ask you, why haven't you had a bar mitzvah? You would probably say, because I'm not Jewish. That's, <laughs> not, that's not something that I do because I belong to this other group. And that is a, that's a thing that belongs to that group. And so you only do that if you're in that group or if you have a quinceanera, it's like, well, that belongs to a particular group. And so that's how most things are. That's how most societies work. That's how, you know, most cultures work. You know, we can say the N word <laughs> and nobody else can. That's just, just how it works. Yeah. Um, but, and I would, I, and I, I think that most people see Christianity, religion works that way. I mean, Hinduism is connected to a particular culture. Islam is, is connected to a particular geographical linguistic culture. And, you know, uh, Navajo, Hawaiian, Aboriginal, like most tribes have their own religion, their own creation story, their own gods, their own kind of, you know, I mean, Shinto is connected to J Japan. Like most religions are connected to a particular culture and region of people um, where, where God or their idea of the divine is intricately connected to their identity as a tribe and as a people and the land that they live on. Um, and so, like most religions, people associate Christianity as being uh, yet another regional or tribal religion that is that is connected to a particular people, white people, uh, Western people. And I mean, you know, indeed, you know, when you look at the history of Europe, the the expression of Christianity that kind of gave rise to European nations from like the fifth up until like the tenth centuries, that Westernized and Romanized Christianity was very much at the at the ethnogenesis of, you know, most Western European nations. And so mm -hmm. it, then that went out and kind of spread all throughout the world through colonialism and globalization. So it makes sense why people think that Christianity, oh, this, you know, and most people who are not Western, their introduction to Christianity was through that Western colonial uh, expansionistic process uh, and project. And so it makes a lot of sense why people think that Christianity is interlaced and, and is just completely inseparable uh, with Western identity and, and white identity. Um, but, uh, it's not, <laughs> and, and not a Western white religion, but that's what people think it is. And, and, and when I say like, as a, as a Christian myself or as a Nasrawi, I like to use the, the, the Ethiopian term for that. Um, because even the terms we use, right. Heaven, hell, God, Christian, like all of the, so much of these terms that we use are actually European, uh, kind of, you know, pre-Christian pagan terms that we've now kind of, you know, uh, put in there. And so, you know, I, as, as just another way of kind of decolonizing and owning, owning the, the faith of Yeshua, uh, as a, as a person of African descent, uh, I like to do that, but, um, but yeah, but miss missionally as a Nasrawi or Christian, uh, myself who has a deep, still has a deep passion for people to know Yeshua as Lord and savior. Um, that, that I, I really do think, as you said, that, that this, this, this idea of Christianity being this Western right religion um, that is, that's the biggest obstacle to the gospel. Um, because, uh, when you, when, when, when Christianity is associated with one particular culture, uh, with Western white culture, then the, the logical kind of, um, you know, consequence of that is that anybody who doesn't fit that cultural identity, that geocultural, you know, uh, community of Western or white will feel like, well, that's not an option for me. So it's, it's a non-starter at the gate. I yeah. mean, we, it doesn't matter if you're in the Middle East or in Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, you know, the Americas among indigenous people or the Pacific Islands. When you're talking about, when you get to talking about Jesus, there's, 
even before we talk about who Jesus said he is and, and, and what he said he came to do and to bring and, and to be for people, it's already a non-starter because Christianity as a system is, is inherently, uh, you know, not an option for my people. That is a, that's a thing for those people and not for my people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and, and we have like 500 years of, again, colonialism, colonialistic history that just builds that wall higher and higher. Um, so I want to take that colonialistic history and set it aside because uh, I had two thoughts um, this morning while I was thinking about this conversation. And so one is kind of your opinion on when people are like, yeah, you know, my Jesus is a black Jesus or my Jesus is a Japanese Jesus or my Jesus is a black woman or my Jesus is X, Y, Z, where people will take Jesus and, and they will remove the white Jesus that has been in the paintings off the wall and replace it with someone from their culture, which I think I'm all right mm-hmm. with because the whole point mm-hmm. is, is Jesus is not white. But also the whole mm-hmm. point there is Jesus accepts this. What, however I was born, this is entirely holy and entirely fine. Um, are you good mm-hmm. with people doing that with Jesus in that way? I, 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 I'm, I'm definitely good with it. I mean, I remember, uh, yeah, I remember, um, the first time I saw uh, like a, a picture of an Asian looking Jesus, like an East Asian looking Jesus when I was in Thailand, uh, at a, at a missionary, um, uh, you know, building. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And, mm-hmm. and then now I just, you know, kind of recently seen this painting of, you know, that's from like, you know, 900s, uh, China, it was found in a in a Buddhist cave, and many a lot of people think it was definitely a Christian drawing, and a lot of people think it was Jesus. And again, drawn with Asian features, and um, I thought like, oh, that's really cool. And I, I mean, I think I think that 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 is a helpful thing. Uh, and I've you know seen many you know black Jesus with dreads, and I think that that I think it can be a helpful thing. I mean, I think that for me at least, the 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 only reminder uh, that I would encourage people as as we depict Jesus in different ways to artistically represent. That, that Jesus is for everybody, yeah. that, which is something that I'm an idea and a, and a truth that I'm deeply committed to uh, people knowing. And so I think artistically, if that helps to communicate that, I think that that's great. I think the only thing I would ask people to bear in mind is that that Jesus was a historical person uh, who lived, you know, in the Levant, in Palestine, you know, 2000 years ago, and that he was you know, a brown skinned uh, Hebrew man from Nazareth. Uh, and a historical person and not, and, and that he is the way, truth, and the life, uh, and that he is God, uh, or, or, um, you know, uh, the creator, the divine, he is the almighty incarnate, uh, and was an actual person who actually born, lived and died and rose again. Um, and that, and that, that, that person who lived from Nazareth was a, was a brown skinned person, um, and you know that that's for me that, that that he's not just an idea or he's not just a fable or a myth or a thing that I can kind of recreate, uh, but but that that the Holy Spirit testifies to him, uh, which is poured out upon all flesh and speaks to all people. Mm-hmm. And word, as it's recorded in uh, you know in Holy Scripture, also testifies in agreement with the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is. And so, you know, I just I think as long as uh, for me at least, as long as we are also based in in uh you know in the um divine status of the uh the, the word of the holy spirit and the word of scripture as how those things testify about who jesus is then i think that uh you know it, it, having that understanding that it can still be helpful though to say that i you know when i paint jesus this way it's not a i'm not trying to make a historical claim necessarily about knowing what he looks like because we know that people in, in palestine even to this day can look like a lot of different ranges yeah. i mean it's 
the unlikely, the least likely one is that he had blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, <laughs> could have been black. He could have been, you know, brown. He could have been. He probably was on some spectrum of the brown uh, family, um, you know. But uh, but you know, but even to draw him looking like Asian or Native American or, or you know, like like you said, like a black woman, I think it's as an artistic statement of saying that Jesus relates to me and speaks to me in my context. Um, oh, but keeping that yeah. historical Jesus in mind would be my only thought. So when I think about like church history, and so this is why I still want to set aside, you know, Westernized, Hellenized, Platoized, Greek, logicized, those are not real words, but you know what I mean? Set aside mm-hmm. all that. So I heard you say, you know, right, you know, around the time of Jesus, like these early Western church fathers, they're still worshiping like Norse gods, like it's still Thor and that type of stuff. And I don't feel mm-hmm. like most people think about that because when you said that, I was like, yeah, we hadn't, it hasn't, okay, hasn't made it that far yet. Um, so what is kind of that early history of the church, you know, in and around that region of the planet? Like, wh- how did it get, how has it grown there apart from the westernized church? Like, kind of, what does that mm. look like, the history of it? How has it impacted the way that we do church and we're not even aware of it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I would say that, I would actually say, well, to, to quickly respond to the last part of the question, um, I would say, sadly, I don't actually think that there is a whole lot of ways that uh, that the spread of the early church in like Africa and Asia has really affected the way that mm. church, if we, if we define we as kind of the, yeah, the dominant kind of Western, you know, expressions of Christianity. I think that, uh, I mean, you know, I, and not to, not to, um, you know, like throw shade, but but you know, a lot of times when people get interested in early Christianity in Africa, they they'll you know they'll ask me you know oh how has it affected uh, the Western Church like how has how has what was the Western Church been really laid uh, the foundation been laid by Africans or Asians? I'm like well, I don't it really isn't mm. um, and uh, you know I think that even the the theologians like Augustine and Tertullian and Origen and Athanasius who were from the continent that we now call Africa were extremely Hellenized and Romanized people in their mentality, in their, in their rhetoric, in their writing, in their educational background. And so even though they might be from the continent known as Africa uh, today, and, and were certainly not white men, they were certainly, you know, brown skinned men like North Africans are again, culturally, they were very, uh, very Hellenized. And that, that is the reason why uh, they, were embraced later by Western Christianity because they were part of Romanitas. So like, I mean, you know, at the beginning of Christianity, uh, Yeshua reveals himself in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in Galilee and in Jerusalem, in a region that is part of Asia, but is at the crux or at the nexus of so much of the known world, right at, right at the, right at the bridge of Africa, you know, the Middle East, Asia and Europe. And, uh, and while technically in the, you know, kind of in the Roman empire is actually culturally Semitic and much more related to, you know, Syrian and Aramaic people who most of whom were not politically in the Roman empire, but were in the Persian empire or in independent Arabian empires in the Arabian peninsula. Um, and then, and, but of course the Hebrews were in every nation. So Acts 2 shows us that you had all Hebrews from all over the you know known world from Africa, Asia, and Europe who came and the Holy Spirit was poured out and they went out in every direction. And so, you know, at the very beginning of, of Christianity, it, Christianity, like we were talking about this idea of cultural products or, or, uh, you know, of, and, and the ancient world was no different. I mean, even like gods were located to a particular region or a particular city, like mm. in Egypt 
Greeks, the gods of Thebes and 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 Karnak and and Alexandria, and, and same thing in in Assyria and and in uh, Persia. You know, there were gods that were the local gods of that kingdom or that city or that that river or that mountain. And so again, now you're saying now there's this group called Christians who are worshiping Jesus, who is the King of Kings. He's the God of all gods for all people in all places, and God in his providence chose the Hebrew people who were already through migration and exile and, and spread and movement had already been embedded in almost every culture on earth. The Hebrews were in Persia, they were in Babylon, they were in India, they were in, I mean, Jews were in Southwestern India. So it makes a lot of sense that there were Christians there at an early age who claimed that Thomas came there. Whether Thomas came there or not, we don't know, but there were certainly Jewish people that traveled across the Indian Ocean into Southwestern India. And we have hardcore evidence that there were Christians there as, as no later than the 200s. Mm. And, uh, and then in Ethiopia, in, in Nubia, Elephantini, in Egypt, and, and in Greece, and Italy, and Spain, there, in North Africa, you know, Carthage, and, and Libya, there, there, were, there were Hebrew people all over. So, you know, God says that the salvation is going to be revealed to the Hebrew, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But again, even those Jews who were gathered at Pentecost were Jews from every nation. And so they went out to those nations and began to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ being Lord and Savior. And then their non-Jewish neighbors in Africa, in Asia, in Europe began, began to become Christian. And it was not associated with any particular culture. And if, it, and if there ever was going to be a culture that it would have been associated with, it would have been the Jews, right? Yeah. It would have been, oh, this is a Jewish religion. But the, the New Testament itself, from, from Matthew to Revelation, is saying, no, this is not just for Jewish people. And, and Acts 15 is saying, no, you are not going to turn these new Gentile Christians into Jewish people. No, they're going to be their own, they're going to do their own thing. And John talks about Jesus as the logos, as a contextualization. So the people are going to continue to be who they are. And, you know, Revelation 7, 9 shows that eschatological vision of a, of a heavenly multitude of every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. Our, we're united in Christ, but our ethnic and cultural distinctions still remain and are still there. And that, and that, that was what was continuing. That, that biblical vision was, was, was happening, and we see it through history. That, again, as I mentioned, you have Christianity in India, no later than the 200s. You have Christianity in China in the 600s, uh, where it's not even called Christianity. It's called the Jingzhao. And which means the luminous way or the luminous religion uh, in Chinese. You have it in, in, in Central Asia among the Sogdians and the Uyghurs and the Turks already in the, you know, uh, in the Hephthalites in the five and six and seven hundreds. Christianity reaches Egypt and then into Nubia, uh, which is a, which is an independent outside of the Roman Empire, African kingdom uh, and Ethiopia and as well as Arabia. So in, in Armenia is the first Christian nation as well as Georgia. Uh, the Persian Empire. There were uh, there were just as many the Persian Empire at the in the in the in the days of early Christianity. The Persian Empire was kind of the the other major empire uh, alongside the Roman Empire, the rival to it. There were just as many Christians in the Persian Empire as there was in the Roman Empire. Hmm. But to your point of like kind of not always looking at the Western, when we talk about the early church, when you read church history books and they talk about the history of the church, they're really talking about the Western church, and they're not, and they're they're kind of doing it in a totalizing hegemonic way where it's like the history of the Western church is the history of the church. And it often just excludes this whole history. But the irony is that in the first few centuries of the church, uh, before it became seen as this Roman thing under Constantine, there were actually uh, just as many Christians in the Persian empire as the Roman. And in fact, it was actually safer to be a Christian in the Roman, in the Persian empire than in the Roman empire. Because wow. the Roman empire were, were killing Christians. Hmm. They were Christians under Septimus Severus and Decius and Diocletian. They were throwing Christians in the Colosseum, throwing them to the lions, and, and they were trying to stamp it out because, uh, not because they had anything against Christianity, but because they had a really big thing for Romanitas and Roman identity. So, you know, 
have been fine if they, the Roman Empire would have been fine if they, if the Christians would have just prayed to, you know, to the Roman gods and to Jesus, because that's what, that's what other people that they colonized did when they colonized Egypt, Egyptians or, or Syrians or whoever else. They said, yeah, you can still pray to your God, just pray to our gods too. So you can even combine a Serapis with ISIS or whatever. Uh, but the Christians are saying, no, we worship only Jesus. And the Romans were like, well, that's a, that's a threat to our national identity, right? Um, and we need to make Rome great again. And so you're going to our gods, right? Um, but, and so they were persecuted. But in the Persian Empire, Christians were freely to worship. In fact, some Roman Christians went to the Persian Empire and had an easier time there. So in the 200s, it was actually safer to be a Christian in what is now Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. That was actually a, that was actually the, you know, people call that the 1040 window or whatever, but that was actually, that was actually the, the reached places and, and Italy and Greece and Spain were the unreached people groups huh. uh, time period. <laughs> What are some of the early church fathers in that early church that aren't Western? Like what, and, and like, and what, I don't want to say contributions. Yeah. That's not the right word. Like, like, as I remember the first time I read about Athanasius and I was studying a lot about the, like the Eastern Orthodox churches. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. Like way more mm-hmm. mystical, may more like less binary, less dogmatic and more like, yeah, we worship a God that literally spoke into being the universe, also spoke you, and is still existing outside of a universe that continues to stretch infinitely. Now let's talk Mm -hmm. about that in a way that our words can somehow figure out. How funny is that? And so like, as I would read some of those early church writings, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. So in Mm -hmm. in a similar similar vein, like what are some of those early, you know, Coptic and Ethiopian and Nubian and that type, like what are some of those early church fathers and mothers, I don't know, um, Mm -hmm. what, what do they offer that we have lost? Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, there, it, there's just so much. I mean, there's 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 literary genres that that only exist in certain languages and that are uniquely Christian. Like in the in, you know, I, I think a great resource to start with is the is the Syriac uh, theologians and, and church uh, fathers and mothers who wrote in the Syriac language. Who again, I mean, um, I mean, part of the reason that uh, I mean, again, I think it's great to look at the Greek speaking theologians that were from that area that offer like, you know, like you said, a really different approach. Um, but one, but I, I really always just got to give a lot of emphasis to the theologians that wrote in other languages other than Greek or Latin. Cause they, I mean, it's so sad because it's to the point to where a lot of their works haven't even been translated into English. So mm. people can't, like people can't get a whereas like a lot of the Greek and Latin, I mean, almost every Greek and Latin church father, you could just go online right now and read their stuff in English yeah. translation and it's been translated. But there's, I mean, you know, I, I think about someone like Georgius of Sagla, you know, uh, G-I-Y-O-R-G-I-S, uh, Georgius of Sagla, S-A-G-L-A, uh, who wrote, uh, is one of the prolific Ethiopian uh, and African theologians who wrote in the 12 and 1300s. And he wrote an entire systematic theological treatise, uh, in, you know, again, a black African theologian who uh, who wrote, again, genres of literature. I mean, the Ethiopians had genres uh, called dersan. Uh, D-E-R-S-A-M, that were uh, these poetic and theological compositions. That and it's a, it's a literary genre that is unique to the Ethiopian context, and um, and 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 you know uh, had entire systems of like philosophy known as kine, 
in in writers like Zara Yacoub, uh, you know, and and then um, you know, and then uh, and that's you know in the Ethiopian context. But then when you, uh, going back to the Syrian, when you look at Syriac authors like Afrahat, who wrote the demonstrations in the early 300s, and Ephraim the Syrian again is probably one of the best resources. I think that you know you mentioned talking about that mystical and talking about the. Um, the, the value in a lot of these communities. Uh, I think Ephraim, Ephraim the Syrian is one of the best examples of what you were talking about, about this approach to theology that really respects the un, uh, ultimate unknowability of God mm. and mystery of God. And, 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 you know, Ephraim writes a lot about, and he's writing in the three hundreds at the same time that you have a lot of the, some of the most prolific early Roman theologians, uh, you know, at that same time, the Cappadocians or John Chrysostom or people like that in the West, uh, and then a little bit later Augustine. But Ephraim has a really, uh, at the same time, but coming from coming from the Syriac-speaking place of, of Edessa or Ohoi in modern-day Turkey, um, that he has a very different approach to theology, where he says he for him, for Ephraim the biggest no-no in theological discourse is thinking that you got God figured out hmm. and. You got God in a box. He he warns against that, you know, profusely all over his theology. He, he says, "Woe against the investigator." So it's interesting. He at the same time that the Council of Nicaea in 325 is saying, "We've decided, we've figured out that the best way to talk about this whole issue is Jesus God or not is that he's Homo Lucius. He's the same essence as the Father, and that's the creed. And if you don't believe in that, you're not a Christian." And 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 again, I mean, I, I believe in I believe in what the Council of Nicaea was trying to say. I believe Jesus is God. I don't believe he's lesser than the Father in any any way. Neither did Ephraim. Ephraim is clearly not a subordinationist in his theology and his Christology. Uh, he writes a a vehement critique of the Arians, uh, who the Arians who were the ones that were saying that they, yeah. there was Jesus didn't exist. Um, so nobody would say that Ephraim. Oh, he's a subordinationist. Not at all. At the same time, though, he actually critiques the use of that word homoousios. And and the and the in the entire way it's kind of being used as a banner of orthodoxy and this boundary of orthodoxy. He's saying, why are you trying to introduce names and and phrases and stuff that's not from the scripture and elevate it as almost as if it's the you know kind of, so he does and, and again in in his language there you know the the, the way to translate homosexuals didn't work for him in his context where he again talking about genres of literature Ephraim wrote these things called madroche and madroche were again poems that were recited publicly with a, with a choir and it really relates uh, I think very well to African-American culture it was a very hmm. response kind of thing where there would be a, a an orator or a speaker who would chant these 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 compositions publicly in the public square and the audience would respond with a chorus and and it was just this very powerful musical tradition that originally was actually Pagan and Ephraim actually reappropriated it uh, toward you know to actually teach the, the gospel and teach yeah. biblical theology in his context and 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 he so writing in that unique genre he doesn't find homoousios to be a useful way of articulating the divine mystery in his context so he he he, he speaks the same gospel message but he rejects this Western hegemonic, uh, you know, way that it has to be interpreted. It has to be communicated in these Western way. I mean, homoousios is not in the Bible. That's not a biblical term. So you say, you know, for Ephraim, uh, he, his theology and really Syriac theology as well, following him like Jacob of Saru, Narsai, and, uh, you know, uh, Philoxenus of Mabu and all of these other Bar Hebraists, these, these, this whole line of, of Syrian uh, theologians that wrote in a language that is just unknown. Uh, they, you know, they really um, have a lot more respect for the way that that God or the Creator Aloha speaks through His Word and also through creation. There's a lot of 
creation in there, and especially for a lot of my indigenous brothers and sisters who have a hard time with, you know, Western Christianity being very cognitive and cerebral and, and scientific that, that again, the, 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 the Syrian branch of Christianity, which eventually came spread into China and into India uh, and into Central Asia at a very early stage, uh, was, was a lot more holistic uh, theologically. For those of you that can't see the video, so the way that Vince is talking about this is the same way that some people are excited about whatever the Super Bowl teams are going to be. Like, I wish that you all could see like the animatedness of no. Let me tell you, like, um, I just, I just, I really, I really like the passion. I'm sitting here watching. I'm like, people, you look like Shannon Sharp yelling about somebody on football. Like, let me tell you, um, which I, I love when you love what you do. It, it just makes it better. Um, so yeah, so talking about language i recently heard recently maybe six seven months ago i listened to a lot of podcasts although not a lot of religious ones uh because i want my questions to be mine but uh and not not aping somebody else's questions but it was a, a conversation about linguists and like islander languages like well past hawaii and talking about you know how the language there, when they still speak, the reason that they navigated so well is because the way that the language was built, like they didn't talk about East versus West, like they used language in a different direction. And that when they try to translate words there, like they don't have an East. And so when you say the word East, like, you know, how far, like as far as the East is from the West, or that type of stuff. So it's like, they say, you know, I sell in the direction um, slightly to the left of where the sun comes up. And or where the sun sets, or where the sun never sets, or you know, which would be like north or south. The sun never sets there. Uh, and so when they talk about stories of the Bible or stories of anything, mm-hmm. it, it means something different because they don't have the same foundational language that we do, which are really like really, really like. Um, I'm curious. So most of the time when people think about that part of the world, all they think about is Islam. Uh, and they, they tend to just forget that Christianity is from there. And so what is kind of the relationship with Islam and uh, the early church in that area? Or is there a relationship between the two? Oh, most definitely. And I, I mean, that's a great question that, that I think really connects to the whole, again, going back to my personal story and the whole reason it gets into this. I mean, the, when you, when you, you know, in the 300s, when the Roman Emperor Constantine and, and, you know, and then all of the Roman theologians who really want to prop him up, you know, when he when he wants to now try to appropriate Christianity to really make it a Roman thing, uh, that was really the beginning of the groundwork that led to, West, to the Western world and to the, later after the fall of the Roman Empire. Western European nations start to rebuild themselves, but in the likeness of Constantine. And they want to kind of, again, make Rome great again and be a new, whether it's Charlemagne or Clovis the first or, uh, you know, Ricard uh, the first and, and all of these different European kingdoms in the five and six hundreds, they be, you know, they continue this trajectory of making Christianity this Western uh, expression and, and kind of harkening back to the, the uh, quote unquote, you know, good old Roman days of the church. Um, that that even though Christianity was in you know Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia and Arabia and India and, and Central Asia and China even earlier than these European contexts, right? The um, but uh, but you know what happened? I think the first step is that the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that was the ba- major breaking point between the Roman Church and many of these other churches in Asia and Africa, where again going to language, like you mentioned, like the Council of Chalcedon says, well, how do we talk about Jesus in a way that makes sense to us? Um, it, you know, is that how is he God and human? Say, so, okay, well, let's say that he's one person 
He's one Jesus. He's one hypostasis, but he has two natures. He has two physics, a human and a divine one. And a lot of the other churches in Arabia and Asia and Africa, they, that didn't make sense to them. That was mm-hmm. like, well, Sounds like you're saying there's two different Jesuses. Now, that's not what the Roman church was saying and what, you know, Roman Catholic and Eastern yeah. Orthodox and later Protestant Christians in the world have just kind of, uh, you know, like maybe just not really thought through that and just kind of imbibe that. And part of and, and so that's why a lot of these early Christians will just get written off by a lot of Western Protestants. Even reading church history textbooks written by evangelicals will just write them off and say, well, the the Catholic Church, or the, the, the church the, at that time was trying to really, you know, strike a middle ground and everyone was on two extremes and the Western church had the right answer in the middle. And I'm just like, that's, that's crap. <laughs> the, 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 they, they weren't even reading, you know, most, most people who, who have that kind of opinion haven't even read Timothy Ehlers uh, of Egypt's against Chalcedon or haven't read the theology of Jacob Osirum in Syriac or Philoxenus of Mabub to really understand what they were saying. And they will just kind of, without even knowing how to read their stuff in Syriac or in Coptic, they'll just reject it as heretical and say, well, they don't really believe, they, the problem with them is they don't really believe Jesus is really uh, human. They thought he was just God. That is, that is that is the opposite of the truth. These believers believe fully in the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus Christ, who is the, uh, you know, part of the triune God. Uh, they just reject the language specifically of saying that he's one person in two natures. Mm-hmm. And as, as perhaps trivial as this argument might seem to a lot of us today, this led to bloodshed in for 200 years and the Roman church was going into the churches. So this is like Christian on Christian violence and oppression and colonialism going into Africa and going into Asia for 200 years and trying to force their particular theology. So, you know, people go, uh, Roman soldiers backed by Roman priests, uh, or actually the other way around, Roman priests backed by Roman soldiers going into Egyptian and Nubian and and uh, and Syrian and Arabian churches saying, you have to talk about Jesus like we do or we're going to kill you. And and so it created a very big gap and, and also it really weakened the churches of Africa and Asia who were, as I mentioned, spreading uh, all over the continents of Africa and Asia. And honestly, this is <laughs> this is why uh, the this Western white captivity of the church is a very huge problem because yeah. once once Europeans started saying we got this thing, you got to be a Christian like us, or we're going to hurt you. Then it again it hindered the gospel effects. So the gospel was on its way. Uh, it was going down the Nile. It was on its way to West Africa and South Africa and Central. You know, it was on its way to Southeast Asia and into the islands and, and you know over. The Americas. It was it was already reached the Pacific Ocean by 600s. But when white folks said, "You got to be a Christian like us, or we're going to kill you," it, it, it severely weakened the missional efforts of a lot of these early Asian and African Christians. Then, when Islam comes around, 200 years after that, in the 600s, it conquers so much of this part of the world where Christians had already been. I mean, Muhammad was educated by a Christian, hmm. and the Quran is all is in, written in dialogue. The, the Quran is almost written as a response to Christianity. Uh, and, and it sees itself as a correction to it. The Christianity is all over the place. Some of the earliest uh, writings in Arabic were done by Christians. There are stone, uh, you know, uh, pict- uh, uh, petroglyphs from Arabia, from the 300s that have crosses on them in Arabic. Uh, you know, the, the Quran even talks about the Christians of Najran, which was a city of Arabia where Christians were being killed by a particular uh, Jewish tyrant in the 500s. And the Quran mentions this event and actually refers to the Christians hmm. who murdered for their faith as believers. The Quran calls Christians believers, huh. uh, specifically Najranite Christians. So there, there's Christians all over this part of the world, of course, but then Muslims take over. But the crazy thing is that at first, uh, a lot of the Christians uh, in Egypt and in North Africa and in Arabia and Persia, the Christians were now like, okay, well, now we're ruled by this new religion called Islam. 
uh, at that point, Muslims were the numerical minority. They were they were in charge of the world, but they were now ruling these regions that were full of Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, Manichees, and and people. You know, so they they had to work with people at first, and and so Christians were allowed to uh, still be Christian. In fact, a lot of the Christians, some of them were even happy that the Muslims conquered. They're like, yeah, get those Roman Christians out of here. <laughs> Them. And that's kind of crazy, but I I always mention that to a lot of a lot of other black Christians. Where I was like, man, sometimes you know, I don't know, man, like eighty percent of evangelicals put Trump in office. Like, man, like sometimes you you wonder, like, do you you know? I know that uh, I know white folks are our brothers and sisters in Christ, but sometimes you feel like you relate to a black Muslim more than a white Christian. Mm. <laughs> that's that's kind of mm. like what in Africa they're like, man. Uh, yeah, get those Roman Christians out of here. We, and of course, we don't share faith with you, but but because there was already this bitter tension uh, over this Christological issue, uh, you know that that the Christians of Egypt and, and Arabia and Syria were now under Islamic rule, were actually now more free to to operate and to do their thing for for a while. But the problem happened several hundred years later in the ten hundreds when the Crusades start. Now again, here come yeah. Europe saying we're going to come and we're going to make you know we're going to make Jerusalem great again and we're going to come in here and we're going to take it back for the gospel that made situation for Christians in that context in the Middle East and Egypt much harder much yeah. worse how Muslims are starting to say all right we're going to force you to convert and you know because we're you know the, these Christians in our lands might be traitors and they might start helping these Europeans these Franks who are coming in here so now we now we need to really force conversion but before that it wasn't really forced conversions in the in the in the world ruled by Islam. The Christians, Muslims, you know, everybody was living uh, in relative peace and they even had interfaith dialogues and mm. debate. I mean, there's debates written uh, in the 800s in Baghdad by top Christian and top Muslim leaders arguing with each other saying, hey, you're, you know, you should believe in the Trinity. Hey, you guys are wrong too. You should, God doesn't have children, you know, and, and, and nobody kills going. each other. And nobody kills each other, yeah. you know. But that, but in the in the, during the Crusades, that really changes. So again, the more <laughs> the this is the history of the more and more it becomes Westernized. It makes it so much harder for non-Western Christians to continue to live in their faith because they become implicated with 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 those folks, and yeah. that's still something that we that we're still dealing with today. I don't want to make light of what you just said because it's literally people dying. But when people are like, "Yeah, Seth, are you like a are you a Christian?" and I'm like, "I don't even know if I want to say that word anymore." Because when you say Christian in Central Virginia or in Houston, Texas, or in I don't know wherever, they're like, "Oh, mm-hmm. so you believe in A, B, C?" And I'm like, "No, actually, mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't know mm-hmm. if that's what you think Christian is. Then I'm not that. I'm something mm-hmm. else, fully in love with Christ, but I'm not mm-hmm. that. So don't put me mm-hmm. in that. Um, which." Mm-hmm is awful that you have to you have to distance yourself from the church in that way. You may or may not know this, but based upon a few, I don't know, six, seven months ago, somebody said, hey, I struggle with hearing, and I would like, someone has told me this is a good conversation. I think I was talking with Brad Jersak. They're like, will you transcribe this one? And I was like, sure. So I transcribed it. They're all on the website. And then I was like, well, crap, you can't just do one. Now I got to start at episode one and work my way up. So I transcribe the episodes both in real time and a few each week in the past. Mm-hmm. And I'm terrified to transcribe this one because a lot of these words and people, I don't even know how to spell them. And so I'm going to give everyone a caveat right now. If you're reading the transcript of this whenever it comes out, I am entirely 1000% certain that I've screwed up some of these names and some of these texts just because <laughs> I don't even know how to Google it. Like literally you wrote one uh, Yorgos Satla, I think you said, and I mm-hmm. spelt it with like a J and with a Y, and then you was like, no, it's G E or whatever. I'm like, well, crap, I don't even know how many. I don't even know how to Google these, <laughs> um, but I'll do the best I can. 
Mm-hmm. So I referenced at the beginning before we started recording, and unless um, unless for some reason I mistimed when I hit the button, that I wanted to ask you a question that I plan to ask every single person. And then after that, I'll let you plug the places, tell people where they can learn more about that. And really, I would like to know maybe a handful of texts at the end as well that people can go and buy and kind of dive into some of this stuff, because I would also personally like to do that. So, But when you say the word God or the divine... When you say that, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Biggest question I think I'm going to ask all year of anyone, because most people, like I, like I alluded to earlier, they're like, ah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what do you mean when you say mm-hmm. God? Yeah, that, no, that's a great question. And I, honestly, like I said, I'm, I'm I'm getting in the practice just in my house around here. Like my, my youngest daughter was like, she started doing that. She's like, I like that. But I'm, I'm like literally recently I'm getting in this habit of actually using the Egyptian word for uh, for the divine or for the creator, which is Nuda. And uh, and it, it means the same thing as God. But again, God, I mean, when, when we look at where that word comes from, it actually comes from, again, like pre-Christian Germanic, uh, you know, paganism. Which is which is cool, you know. But again, just as a way of like showing, hey, there's other ways that we can talk about the Creator, uh, and it doesn't have to be God or heaven and hell and all this Nordic terminology. Um, but we can use you know, stuff from our African roots or or Asian or whatever. Um, I mean, you know, in China they they have you know they call him Shandi, and uh, in Ethiopia he's, he's the Creator is known as Exi Abher, and that means that means the the Lord of the land, literally. Um, and I, I really like that one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, when I, when I say like Nuda or, or God, uh, or Dios in Spanish, uh, I'm talking about the, yeah, I'm talking about the creator. I'm talking about first cause of all existence, the, the cause of all things good, the, 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 the originator of all life who is eternal, who lives, uh, outside and inside of time and, uh, all kind of human attempts of understanding even what existence are, that he's the reason for all of it. Um, uh, he's the reason for everything good, uh, but not you know, nothing bad. And, um, and, uh, and that he is, uh, as, as, and I believe that his Holy spirit is poured out on all flesh. I believe that it speaks through his images in every single human being. Uh, and I think that his spirit, uh, is breathes life inside of every person and that it draws all people to him. And so even people who don't have not yet fully come to know him fully realized, uh, as the incarnate, uh, Yeshua Hamashiach, uh, that, 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 that spirit that lives in that the spirit of the almighty that lives and dwells in every person and is drawing them to. And so even all of us in our, in our worship, even if it hasn't been fully realized, even in other religions, it hasn't been fully realized yet in Yeshua. I love the idea of the, I love the imagery of the Magi, uh, story in uh, the nativity where you have these, you know, Persian Zoroastrian priests, the Zoroastrians, they worship the stars. So that's why they were looking at the stars. And then <laughs> the creator, uh, Nuda actually calls them through their worship and through the stars. So I think of when I see people who are worshiping and reaching out to the divine, uh, even if they're not Christian, even if they're not a Nasrawi, right, uh, having fully known Jesus as Lord and Savior, that I see that 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 the Creator is working in them, drawing them unto Himself, drawing uh, like drawing them through His Spirit and through His Word. So I believe that the Bible is. Uh, Old and New Testament is God's holy word. And so the way that the scripture talks about God, that he is completely light and in there is no darkness, that that uh, that he is not a human, that, uh, that his ways are above those of humans, that, that he is the creator, that he uh, that that he is uh, all good, that he's love, that all the, the ways that the spirit and the word, which I believe testify in agreement with one another, uh, describe the, who the creator, the divine Elohim, Yahweh to be uh, is what I mean when I say God. 
And I would say, and I would add that everything I just said is, is utterly worthless to really understand really who God is. <laughs> it, it far misses the mark. Is <laughs> utterly okay. I would agree. So um, I asked that to a guy weeks ago, and he asked me back, and I was like, you know, God's a metaphor that I don't quite have the words for yet. And he was like, mm-hmm. and that's the best thing that I can come up with uh, without any expounding on it. You know. Um, and then you have to define what a metaphor is, but I've tried to find a way, that answer to my for myself in a way that I can explain it to my seven year old and my ten year old. You know, I, I can't like, if I can't explain it to them, then what's the point? If that makes any sense at all, um, mm-hmm. that won't always right. be the case. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, so where do people go to hear more of you, read more of you? Uh, you teach, correct? Because there's a doctor there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where do people mm-hmm. go to engage with you? And then again, if you could give us maybe one or two places to go to kind of find a manifest or lists that we could kind of learn more about some of this history mm-hmm. that we just don't know about, I think that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah, I would definitely. Uh, Why? Well, yeah, I teach. Uh, yeah, I do teach, and in two uh, contexts. So I'm, I'm here in Houston, Texas. I'm a prof at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, you know, it's based in Pasadena. But we have a campus here in Houston uh, as well. And so I teach uh, church history and also black church studies. And, you know, right now I'm teaching a class on intro to black theology and we're getting into a lot of this, this fun stuff. And so um, that's definitely a place I'd love to connect with people through taking courses and doing degrees or, or just auditing, uh, you know, as well. We do stuff online. Uh, and then um, also I, I also uh, uh, am part of a, a seminary uh, called the Meacham School of Hymenote. Hymenote is an Ethiopian word for theology. And um, the website for that is www.meacham.org. And uh, that's also a place where we offer classes uh, fully online or, or in person. Uh, you know, we offer in residence courses in St. Louis, Missouri, and in Newark, New Jersey. And, um, and but they're, they're also fully online courses in, in theology, biblical studies. Uh, and and, and it, it has a very Afrocentric kind of perspective, but also in biblical orthodoxy. And uh, we have a conference coming up in Chicago uh, on October 23rd and 24th uh, called the uh, Society for Gospel Hymenote. Again, the Ethiopian word for theology, where we're going to, it's going to be a gathering of, you know, uh, again, Afrocentric theological and biblical studies. Um, and so that's another, you know, context that, uh, that folks can find me in. Uh, also through the Meacham School, I'm going to be leading a trip to Ethiopia mm. uh, in January of, of 2021. And so uh, I'm actually finalizing the flyer for that right now. So people can be on the lookout for that with like literally in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, so yeah, there's just some things. And then, uh, yeah, with, with further reading. Um, yeah. I would say, uh, I would say that, um, uh, you know, some good books that come to mind, uh, I guess maybe secondary sources would be, uh, you know, there's uh, Philip Jenkins has this book called the lost history of Christianity, which is really good. And uh, um, Thomas Oden has a book called How Africa Shaped the Western Christian Mind. And, and um, also there's a book called Black Man's Religion uh, by Craig Keener and Glenn Usry. And those are some good, I think, some good texts that are really good intros. I think uh, some, some maybe some better, uh, but also like <laughs> longer or like a lot more uh, intense stuff is like uh, History of Eastern Christianity by Aziz Atiyah. Well, that's a bit longer, but it's written by more of a specialist. So I think it's a... Uh, an even more in-depth uh, look into a lot of these uh, these communities. Um, and then in terms of primary sources, which I think is even more important, um, I mentioned Afrahat 
A P H R A H A T F from the Syrian E P H R E M F from the Syrian uh, in Coptic Shenouda S H E N O U T E and that's related to that Nuda word I mentioned for God. Uh, yeah, Shenouda is is really one of the greatest writers in the Coptic Egyptian language, and there's actually some really good recent English translations of a lot of his writings. And in the Ethiopian context, I think uh, Georgis of Sagla is a is a really great resource. And also uh, the reading the um, the uh, the sutras from China that were the Christian sutras from China that were written. Um, there was a there's a translation of those in English by a, a Japanese scholar. I don't remember his first name, but I know his last name is. Uh, uh, I think I might be mispronouncing, but it's uh, Saiki S A E K I. Um, and, and it's just really great to read these Chinese contextualized texts that were written, you know, over a thousand years ago that talk about the Holy Spirit as the cool breeze and mm. and. Jesus says the world honored one and, and talks about how he came to illuminate the four cardinal paths and the eight noble truths. And it's just this beautiful contextualization of, of the gospel message into a Taoist Confucianist context. And so some of these primary texts are really good. Um, the last plug I'll mention is that I'm, I'm, I'm for my own stuff. Like I have a book coming out uh, in, a, in a couple of months with InterVarsity Press called A Multitude of All Peoples. And it's also kind of a, a secondary uh, text that just kind of gives an intro to a lot of this early history. And then, um, and that's, that should be coming out soon, but also a, a, a plug that's a bit further off, uh, but I'm really excited about is I actually just uh, signed a contract with University of California Press to do a primary text reader where what we're going to do is myself and a team of translators of a dozen people, we're actually going to take a lot of these texts, uh, you know, who, uh, like like I mentioned, Georgis of Sagla wrote an entire systematic treatise. But the sad thing is, it's not even, to my knowledge, it's not translated into English. It's translated into Italian from Ethiopian. So, you know, we can't even read uh, the best <laughs> the best systematic theology written by a pre-colonial African. Um, but we, this will be included in this reader and it will include dozens and dozens of texts in Arabic, Chinese, uh, a Persian, Egyptian, Nubian, Ethiopian, Armenian, uh, so on and so forth. And it's going to be just primary texts written by Christian theologians from before the colonial period. So from the first 1500 years of Christianity. So that we just signed the contract and that should be out, uh, you know, when, our, our projected date is in two years. So that'll, the hope will be that that will be a resource to for those who are interested in reading some of these people in their own writing. So when you say reader, you mean you're taking it and just verbatim translating it to English and then letting me read that with none of your context. Although I'm aware, and I agree with Brueggemann, every time we translate something, there's a little bit of your inherent bias in the translation because that's just how words work. But mm-hmm. that aside, it's, that's what it is. It's not like it's like a commentary or anything. It's It's just moved over. That's right. It's just, it's just moved over. And there will be, I mean, there will be, it's meant to kind of be a follow-up to my book that's coming out this spring. Cause like, as I speak on it and hopefully as if folks read the book, hopefully people and people have said like, okay, Vince, you, you've now told me these names. I don't know. Like Ephraim, <laughs> I never heard of these theologians and wow, they actually wrote just as much as, as Augustine or, or Calvin or Luther or, or, or Aquinas or whatever. And I need to read them as well. How do I read them, Vince? And I'm like, well, see what had happened was. Uh, <laughs> what happened was, you, I'll fix that. I'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now there will be, in the reader though, there will be, um, it's meant to kind of be a follow-up to the book, uh, which is an intro that gives that context. But in the book, in the reader, there will be context as well. So there'll be an introduction that that talks about, uh, kind of a summary again of like, this is the story of how Christianity spread in Africa and Asia 
and, you know, a little bit intro. And then even before each text, there'll be like a little intro to say, okay, this is what this text is. This is who this author is. This is what they're talking about. Mm. This is what they're writing. This is the genre of literature. And then we'll give like a, you know, it might be a five to 10 page excerpt from like, you know, kind of the greatest hits of, of early African and Asian theology. I have greatly enjoyed it. I am entirely terrified to transcribe it, but I'll do it. But I have really enjoyed uh, talking with you, learning just like, this is just scratching. Like I literally was writing down every single one of those names. I know absolutely nothing about really any of this. And that is both terrifying, a little bit infuriating, but I'm also really excited about it because it gives me gives me more space to grow. The more and more that I do this show and the more and more that I read things, I realize just how little the God that I believed in was and how much bigger the God that I believe in is which is really great so thank you again for coming on i very much so i'd love to have you back on at a different date when i maybe actually know a few things so we have a little more questions to ask there oh no thanks so much for having me yeah this is awesome it is a privilege to be able to speak to people that bring so much new knowledge new names new theologians to the table and are doing so in such a way that the events isn't judging me for not knowing. He's just really lovingly coming alongside to educate. And it was an honor and a privilege to talk with Vince today. I'm going to list, I'm going to try my best in the show notes to list all of the books that he talked about and a lot of the theologians that he talked about. And then in the transcript of the show, uh, everywhere that those names pop up, I will shoot links if I'm able to, to either Amazon or other books or, you know, other information on those people. Because if you're like me, they're all new people. A tremendous thank you again to the Salt of the Sound for still allowing me to use your music in today's episode. Eventually, I will get back to mixing in new music, but again, I'm committed to working my way through the backlog of transcripts. I have about 40 more left to go. I hope that every single one of you are blessed. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>